morning and welcome. So this morning, we're going to begin a new series today. We're going to study the attributes of God. And I, I'm really looking forward to this time and uh, with this study with you over the coming weeks. Um, I, I trust that you would agree with me that spending time learning about the character of God, His attributes, contemplating these great truths about God is time well spent. Um, so before we get started, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, we praise you. Praise you for being all-powerful, holy, perfectly righteous and just, all-wise and knowing, loving and gracious, our all-sufficient God. So as we work through this study of your attributes, Lord, I pray that you would just open our eyes to know you more. You make this a profitable time that we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you haven't already gotten a handout, uh, they are in the back there, if you would like. And for those of you who like to fill in blanks, I have put some blanks on the sheet for you. Now, after each week, I'm going to provide a version of the handouts that have the blanks filled in, and we'll put them on the website for you, but not until after. So you can't go out there early and have them filled in. Now, on that handout... Uh, you'll see I've also included some quotes from some various theologians and authors that I thought were helpful. Now, I don't have all of them that I'll include, but I have a number of them there for your reference. Now, a priority for us in these sessions as we step into this is that we apply what we've learned. So at the end of each lesson, I will attempt to put together some takeaways. Uh, these are lists of key points for you to consider to help us in how we can apply what we've learned each week. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. Our knowledge of God, it, it determines many things if you think about it. What we think, how we act, what we believe, how we worship, how we live day to day. It's the lens or the template by which we view life, how we see everything. It defines our worldview, how we view culture around us, how we view history, politics, marriage, trials and suffering. Everything is based on that. Now, you likely know the answer to the first question of the Westminster Catechism. That first question is, what is the chief end of man? That answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But did you know that John Calvin also wrote a catechism? About a hundred years before the Westminster Catechism, he wrote a catechism. It was called the Geneva Catechism. And it followed of a similar form. The very first question in Calvin's catechism is, what is the chief end of human life? Very similar question. And his answer, to know God, his creator. 
to know God as creator. So a major life for us is to know God. And I propose to you in support of both of these catechisms and their answers that in order to glorify God and to enjoy God, we first must know God. Calvin's catechism continues with a question, what reason have you for this answer? This is great. They're very good about creating very structured questions and answers back in the day, right? The answer, because God has created us, placed us in this world, that he may be glorified in us. And certainly, it is certainly right, as he is the author of our life, that it should advance his glory. There's that glory, right? The next question Why do you account the knowledge of God the chief good? Answer, because without it, our condition is more miserable than any of the brute creatures. (laughs) Isn't that good? It's so true. There is nothing greater for us to consider, to ponder, than God himself. Charles Spurgeon said, and this is in your handout, the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. We'll never be able to completely plumb the depths of the knowledge of God. That's not what this study is all about but that's not a reason to avoid it. He has provided a wealth of truth for us in his word, and that's going to be our primary source as we explore these various attributes of God. In 1 Corinthians 4.1, Paul says that we are stewards of the mysteries of God, and we've been given a great privilege uh, of discovering and learning about and experiencing more and more of the character of God uh, for our joy, but ultimately for his glory. So what does God expect of us in this regard? We'll turn over to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9. The Lord gives us some insight into this through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. I delight in them. So knowing God's not just for our benefit, which is a wonderful thing, but it also delights God. He delights in us knowing about him. John 17 Chapter, or John chapter 17, verse 3, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he gives us another perspective on this. He says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So our eternal salvation is linked with a saving knowledge of God in the gospel of Christ. So many of you are likely familiar with the attributes of God. This is probably not a new thing for you. It might be, and, uh, but for many of you it may not be. But I want to make sure we have a common understanding of that term before we get very far. Webster's Dictionary defines the word attribute as a quality, character, or characteristic ascribed to someone or something. In other words, it's a way of describing something or someone. Another dictionary described it as a quality or feature that is an inherent part of someone or something. That's a key word. Inherent means it already exists, and it's being recognized as such. It's not something that's temporary or arbitrarily assigned. So when we talk about the attributes of God, we'll use this working definition. I have it in the handout here. His attributes are the features, qualities, and characteristics that inherently exist in God as revealed in Scripture. Another perhaps similar way to define the attributes of God is something which God has declared true of himself, as we discover in Scripture. Thomas Watson said, God's glory lies chiefly in his attributes, which are the several beams by which the divine nature shines forth. So if you're looking to understand God's glory that concept, or try to put a finger on that concept of God's glory, which sometimes might appear to be an abstract thing when we talk about God's glory, Watson makes it very clear. Look to God's attributes. That's where we see God's glory. Now, you may be wondering, well, why spend so much time on this? Um, I've thought of a few hesitations that some may have, and you might identify with one or more of these. One, many of you, you're likely familiar with these attributes. You've probably studied them many times. You might even be able to um, identify and discuss in detail some of these attributes that we're going to cover. And you might say, well, aren't these fairly straightforward? There's not anything new recently that we've discovered here. Or perhaps you're thinking, well, this is an academic exercise. This should be left to theologians. Well, after all, they have come up with some pretty fancy terms to define some of these attributes, right? Or, but more importantly, you might be thinking or asking yourself, how could understanding God's attributes have a direct impact on my Christian walk? What does it mean for me? How could it help me grow in personal holiness? How could it help me be a better parent, a spouse, a co-worker, a friend, or a church member? How could it help me be a better witness for Christ? Well, I'm convinced it is worth our time. And my goal in this study is to help us not only do a survey of these attributes, but help us answer some of these questions along the way. We don't want this to be just a knowledge exercise. While that is an important element, we want this knowledge as we gain it to help us in understanding God's attributes to help us in growing in holiness and apply it as we learn. 
J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, said, Knowing God is a matter of personal dealing, as is all direct acquaintance with personal beings. Knowing God is more than knowing about him. It is a matter of dealing with him as he opens up to you and being dealt with by him as he takes knowledge of you. Knowing about him is a necessary precondition of trusting him. That last sentence is really important. And I'll I'll add that this is not just a one-time thing. It's certainly a requirement for us at the moment of salvation because we must know whom we are placing our faith in, right? But it continues throughout the entire Christian life. If we're to grow in our sanctification, our understanding of him must grow accordingly. But, as Packer said, knowing God is more than knowing about him. So, as we look into a number of these attributes, let's make sure we don't just stop at learning about him, but that we consider the significance of these truths on our lives uh, and how, how we should think, believe, and behave as a result of that knowledge. So, in this first session today, uh, I'm not going to go into a specific attribute. If that's what you were expecting, come back next week. We'll jump into one of the attributes. But what I will want to do is cover three things. First, we'll consider the importance of understanding God's attributes. We need to start there. Understand why. Why do we do this? Uh, and in particular, we'll consider a number of the benefits of studying God's attributes. Second, we'll explore the nature of God's attributes and their relationship to one another. This can be our guide and help us set a context as we look at the various attributes, uh, reminding us of some of the key truths of God's attributes. And lastly, we'll briefly run through the list of attributes that we'll be covering in the future sessions. And I'll, I'll be Uh, quick to tell you that this list of God's attributes that I've listed here, this is not a comprehensive list, right? It's not complete. It's not authoritative from here. However, every author that I've researched that has ventured to write about this has a slightly different list of attributes. It's not all um, predefined. However, there are a number of attributes that are commonly found among those authors, and more importantly, revealed in Scripture, right? So I'll focus on those. And in all of this, we're going to search the Scripture, right, to ground our understanding. As you can imagine, we're going to go all over the Bible because, you know, Old and New Testament, God's Word has a lot to say about His attributes. So why study the attributes of God? So our understanding of God is crucial to how we live our lives as Christians. We have to have a right view of God as our foundation because the implications are very important. Our entire worldview is governed by understanding who God is. Our understanding of God and his character, it's crucial to living a life that is pleasing to him. Joel Beakey says, knowing God is the engine of holiness in our lives. When the engine is not running well, uh, the rest of uh, the person is not going to be running well, right? We must have a right view of God. If we're wrong about God, we'll be wrong everywhere else in our lives. 
that false ideas about God lead to shallow spirituality and that mimics the world, and that's dangerous. You've heard the saying, elections have consequences, or ideas have consequences. Well, our understanding of God has consequences. Or, put another way, theology has consequences. Monumental consequences. Steve Lawson describes our knowledge of God as the continental divide of the Christian life. One drop of water on the side of right knowledge of God leads to tributaries, rivers, and oceans of right and holy living. One drop of water on the other side leads to tributaries, rivers, and oceans of low and base living. So we must get it right. Now, I've listed some reasons why to study the attributes of God or the benefits of doing it. Number one, it pleases God. It, it pleases him. We, we read earlier in Jeremiah where God delights in us understanding and knowing him. Turn over to, first, or turn over to Colossians 1 with me. Colossians chapter 1. And in verses 9 and 10, Paul writes this. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, that being their faith in Christ, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. There it is. There's that concept of of growing in our knowledge of God as believers. And it not only benefits us, it pleases him. Number two, it develops our trust in God. Studying God's attributes develops our trust in God. Psalm 910 says, And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So as we seek the Lord, desiring to know him more and more, our trust in him grows. Number three, it guards us against having a wrong view of God. A wrong view of God. Understanding God's attributes is protective of us. As fallen creatures, even redeemed Christians, will have the tendency to stray in our thinking if we're not grounded in a true understanding of who God is. Thomas Watson, in his Body of Divinity, talks about the need for Christians to be well-grounded and settled in their faith. And that those who are not are like feathers. He says, as feathers, we will be blown every way. So will feathery Christians. So we don't want to be feathery Christians. We want to be established on the foundation of the truth of God. A.W. Tozer says, 
a right conception of God is basic, not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. There is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. Now, on the other hand, number four, studying God's attributes provides a right view of ourselves. A right view of ourselves. Understanding more of who God is can help us understand how us and how we are not like him. We do share some of his attributes, and we'll, we'll get into that later into the study. But even then, when we share some of his attributes, we do not share them perfectly or fully. So, for example, we, we cannot know how unholy we are until we know how holy God is. We, we cannot know how weak we are until we know how strong and all-powerful and omnipotent God is. It helps us understand that. Number five, it teaches us how to live for God, how to live for him. God created us to glorify him. And when we grow an understanding of who he is, learning about his attributes, we also learn how to live for him. For example, learning more about God's holiness directs us to live more holy lives. Or learning more about God's love and mercy teaches us to be loving and merciful to others. Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5 says, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. J.I. Packer said, Knowing God is crucial to living our lives, and it would be cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. A very practical statement, is it not? Number six, studying God's attributes enriches our study of the Bible. And we understand that Scripture is our primary source for knowing God's attributes. As we seek to understand God's character while reading Scripture, it can open up further understanding of an appreciation of what we're reading. And there are a number of things that we should look for when reading Scripture. You probably heard these uh, from others here at PBC. When you read Scripture, what are you looking for? Commands to obey, sins to avoid, examples to follow, promises to claim, warnings to heed. These are all wonderful things, and we should be looking for these things as we read Scripture. We should also be looking for God's character, especially if we're not able to clearly understand the Scripture that we're reading. Look for God's character. So I would suggest adding to this list of things to look for when we're reading Scripture to include the knowledge about God. What attributes are God, of God are revealed in the passages that we're reading? Number seven, studying God's attributes enhances our worship and prayer life. Our worship and prayer life. When we worship God, we are first to do so in response to his attributes. Thomas Aquinas wrote, Theology proceeds from God, teaches us about God, and leads us to God. In other words, our theology 
determines our doxology. Our theology determines our worship and our praise. It should be informed by that understanding. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, we get a glimpse through John's vision of the throne of God and how the heavenly creatures praise him. It says, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. They're they're, they're exclaiming his attributes in worship. And when we pray, we can easily focus on the things that we want to ask of God. Not just for ourselves, but for others. And he wants us to do that. But prayer is an opportunity to remind us of God's attributes. Using that model of acts adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication as a pattern for prayer. The first being adoration, and that's where we should start. It's different than thanksgiving. So adoration is praising God for who he is, his attributes, and thanksgiving is thanking God for what he's done or what he's doing or what he's going to do. A great way to adore him is simply to recall his attributes. If we don't know what else to pray, recall those attributes. The Psalms provide us a number of examples. Let's look at one. Turn to Psalm 100. Psalm 100, verse 5. This would be a great start to any prayer. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. That would be a great one to memorize. I'm telling myself right now, because I haven't memorized it, but it's a great, it would be a great one to memorize. In that one verse, we see a number of attributes. I counted four right there. His goodness, his loving kindness, his eternity, and his faithfulness. All in one verse. Number eight, studying God's attributes gives us comfort, hope, and assurance in this world. Comfort, hope, and assurance. Now, let's face it. There's much going on in this world that is contrary to God and his ways. It can be easy to get discouraged. But knowing that God is sovereign, good, just, all-powerful, just to name a few can save us from a multitude of worry and fear and despair. Isaiah 26.3, one of my favorite verses in Scripture, says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. What better way to keep our mind stayed on him than to remember his attributes? Charles Spurgeon said, Plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. So there are a number of benefits to studying God's attributes. Um, the, and I'm sure there are more. 
but I, I trust you agree that this is worthwhile. Now, ultimately, when we focus on the attributes of God, we view life from a new perspective. We view it from God's perspective. And there can't be a better way to view life. So moving on to the nature of God's attributes. And I chose to put this in here because I think it's helpful for us to understand these general characteristics that we should keep in mind when we start to study God's attributes. Number one, all attributes are equally present in the Godhead. They're equally present in all three persons of the Trinity. God the Father does not possess a different set of attributes from God the Son or God the Holy Spirit. Any differences that we observe in Scripture are in ministries or in purpose. Remember that while God the Trinity is three in person, he is one in essence. We learn that early in Scripture, Deuteronomy 4.6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Kim Riddlebarger says, The three persons of the Godhead are revealed as equal in divinity, glory, and majesty. Each of these three persons are expressly called God in the New Testament, and to each of them is assigned the same divine attributes, as well as the same glory and majesty which are ascribed to the other persons of the Trinity. Now, you might be asking, well, what about Jesus' incarnation when he came to earth? He didn't exhibit all of the divine attributes while he was on earth, did he? He certainly didn't exhibit omnipresence. And others appeared to be limited at times. He was tired, right? He needed rest. In Philippians 2, we read about Jesus' emptying himself in his incarnation. So what does that mean? Now, I'm not fully qualified to address this. So you can ask uh, the elders and pastor you to, to go into detail on this. But what I can be sure about, and I believe they would agree, that Jesus did not give up any of his deity in his incarnation. He didn't cease to be God. He was truly human and truly God. And one perspective that this, it was helpful to me uh, in explaining this is that Jesus' human nature, he laid aside privileges that were his in heaven, but his divine nature did not change. God is always his attributes. Number two, all attributes are incorruptibly perfect. Incorruptibly perfect. They cannot be increased or improved beyond what they are. They have no defects. Some theologians use the word perfections instead of attributes. Particularly the, uh, the, the Puritans would use that word, God's perfections. He's perfect in every way. Number three, all attributes are identically his essence, his essence or his being. God doesn't just have his attributes. He is his attributes. Essence is defined as the intrinsic nature or indispensable quality of something that determines his character. 
So when we talk about God's essence, we use his attributes to describe it. Uh, John MacArthur in Richard Mayhew's Biblical Doctrine says, God is what he has. He does not merely possess love, justice, and goodness. He is love, justice, and goodness, eternally, fully, and completely. Number four, all attributes are eternally permanent. They are permanent, past, present, and future. For example, the God of the Old Testament has the same attributes as the God of the New Testament. Circumstances were very different between the Old and the New Testament. We know that, but God was not different. He didn't change. His attributes are always active. Now, this is a preview of one of God's attributes we'll cover actually next week, his attribute of immutability or his unchangeableness. Also, God will not compromise one of his attributes when exhibiting another attribute of his. Scripture many times emphasizes a particular attribute for our benefit, right, for a particular time. But that doesn't de-emphasize or diminish his other attributes. Number five, all attributes are inseparably interconnected interconnected. They are not slices in a pie, or, but they're fully integrated with each other. They're not pieces and parts. God is not composed of parts like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. This is what theologians call his attribute of simplicity, and you probably remember that in the video series uh, a few weeks ago that was talking about this. It it means that God is without parts. He's not a composite being that depends on something or someone else to unify those parts. It's also important to note that God's simplicity does not contradict the concept of the Trinity. MacArthur and Mayhew uh, say that God's essence is not composed of three persons. Rather, the uncompounded, undivided divine essence exists in each of the three persons. God's attributes also qualify one another. They complement each other. For example, his justice is a holy justice, a loving justice. His love is a righteous and holy love. In Scripture, we observe one of God's attributes being emphasized for our understanding of benefit. Remember, it's never at the exclusion of of his others. So we'll cover a number of these attributes separately throughout this study. We'll see how they relate to one another, but we should remember that all of his attributes are operating fully all the time. And another thing to consider is how God's attributes can be categorized. There are different ways in which theologians have attempted to classify God's attributes, Uh, and the Bible doesn't explicitly lay out categories for us, so these are devised by theologians. But they're done so to help us understand 
those attributes. And I, I won't cover all the various approaches, but I'll just mention the one that we're going to use for this study, uh, a simple one uh, that's been used by theologians for many years. And it's this concept of incommunicable and communicable attributes. So the first is incommunicable attributes. Incommunicable attributes. I think it's later on. If you don't know how to spell it, it's a little bit further down in the handout. So incommunicable attributes are those attributes that are unique to God and not shared with humans. Uh, These are qualities that only God can have, and they make him distinct from his creation, such as his omnipresence. He's present everywhere. Or his immutability, his unchangeability. We do not possess those attributes. The second is communicable attributes. So just take the I-N off. Communicable attributes are those that are shared with us, are transferable to us in part. These are primarily his moral attributes, such as love and mercy and patience, attributes that we have the ability to possess. And while we can exhibit these attributes... As God's image bearers, we do so imperfectly and incompletely, while God does so perfectly and infinitely. And note, we cannot define these qualities without reference to God as revealed in Scripture. So uh, we certainly can't base our understanding of these the way the world does. We need to rely on Scripture. Now, I listed a few cautions to consider as we move into this study. Number one, our understanding of God's attributes, while drawn from Scripture, will never fully encompass the infinite perfections of God. There's another attribute not on my list that I'm not covering, but is a free one today that applies here. It's God's incomprehensibility. His incomprehensibility. That doesn't mean he's not knowable. We learn much about him from Scripture, but as finite creatures, we're not able to know him exhaustively or comprehensively. As his created beings, we're not the creator who is infinite and exists outside of creation. This speaks to his attribute of transcendence. And remember that in his wisdom, God has chosen not to reveal some things to us, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29 starts with the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The uh, 11th century theologian Anselm prayed this at the beginning of his uh, proslogion. He says, I do not try, Lord, to attain your lofty heights because my understanding is in no way equal to it, but I do desire to understand your truth a little. That truth that my heart believes and loves. For I do not seek to understand so that I may believe, but I believe so that I may understand. So if the brilliant Anselm is humbling himself to this extent, I I think it's safe to agree that we should do the same. Now on the other hand, while God is incomprehensible in a complete sense, God is also knowable. The second part of Deuteronomy 29, 29 instructs us. It says, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. 
God's provided that knowledge to us in his word. And it's sufficient for us for life and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3. Number two, we must be careful not to artificially separate his attributes from each other or emphasize one attribute of another. They all exist perfectly at all times. A common example might be, well, my God is a God of love, not of justice and wrath. That kind of thinking is contrary to what we know of his attributes of immutability. He doesn't change. Or his simplicity. He's not made up of one part and not of another. Similarly, although we're distinguishing attributes between incommunicable and communicable, we can't divide God into parts and lose harmony or unity among his attributes. Number three, learning about God's attributes cannot stop with head knowledge. This knowledge should be a springboard to more holiness and joy in the Lord. So the next section I... um, have here is this list of God's attributes. I, I did a survey of a number of theologians who've listed these attributes. You can imagine no two authors have the same list, but there are a number of attributes that, that occurred multiple times. Um, it, what we'll do is we'll start with God's incommunicable attributes, and we'll work through those, and then we'll move to the communicable attributes. Now, There might be an attribute on this list that you don't see. And my uh, uh, ability to cover all of them is going to be incomplete, but I would love your feedback. If there's something on there you're burning to, to cover, let me know. So some takeaways. Number one, be thankful that the God of the universe has made himself known. Deuteronomy 4.35 says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God, there is no other besides him. You may know. We learn about him in three primary ways. One, his creation, which is evident to all. Psalm 19.1, Romans 1.20. And two, we learn about him in his infallible word, the Bible. And three, for those of us who are redeemed believers, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? To illumine Scripture to us, enabling us to understand it in a way that does not happen for unbelievers. So be thankful that he's made himself known and continues to. Number two, our theology must start with God and our understanding of him as revealed in Scripture and move down to us, never the other way. We cannot work up to God with human thinking. For example, I need to be loved, therefore God must have such a need as well. He needs to be loved like I need to be loved. Or when God is angry, he must get angry the way I do. When we do this, we risk the possibility of creating a God in our own image. That's very dangerous. In Matthew Barrett's book, None Greater, he talks about a domesticated God that we are prone to make when we view God as just a bigger, better version of ourselves. While we're made in the image of God, 
we are not the same essence or being of God himself. In Luther's Bondage of the Will, one of his responses to Erasmus regarding the human will and God's sovereignty, he told Erasmus, your thoughts concerning God are too human. They're too human. We don't want that to happen. Starting with understanding of how God is not like us, the incommunicable attributes, allows us to start from the top and work our way down to humanity and what we are able to share with God in his communicable attributes. We must move from the creator to the creature. And number three, as a believer, use your understanding of God's attributes to fuel your worship inform your study of Scripture, and guide your thoughts and actions. That would be the ultimate takeaway for this entire series. Our goal in studying attributes of God is not to know about Him, but use that knowledge to help us know Him personally, orient our perspective on everything, and grow in holiness. Now, in the additional resources section, I've listed a number of books that I've been uh, drawing from on this study. And if you're interested in reading more, you can consider those. Uh, The little bullet points next to each one indicates the uh, weightiness, I guess, if you will, or the heaviness of the book, uh, if you're so inclined. Um, They're all wonderful books, wonderful resources. Yes? I thought you told me these were all required All required reading. Okay. Well, I would suggest starting with the the easy ones and working your way through, and sometime next decade you might get through... uh, the other ones. But in particular, I wanted to highlight a couple books. And these are in the book center for your reference if you would like to get them. Uh, the first one is uh, None Else by Joel Beakey and Brian Cosby. This is a wonderful devotional style book. Covers a number of attributes in a, in a concise way. Really, really helpful um, to, to get started. And then the second one is Show Me Your Glory by Steve Lawson. Uh, This is a little bit more detailed, but a wonderfully structured book that covers a number of the attributes. I'm using this as my primary source. So if you want to get a glimpse into maybe what I might be covering structure-wise, this is what I'm using primarily. So two great resources. The other ones are wonderful as well. So as we close, I just want to make one thing very clear. Make no mistake, this is indeed theology that we are studying. The attributes of God are a core element of what we call theology proper, or the doctrine of God. Pretty much any systematic theology book you pick up is going to have a section on the attributes of God, rightfully so. But theology does not exist as an end in of itself. We don't study theology just to know theology, but we study it to know God. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, As theology is ultimately the knowledge of God, the more theology I know, the more it should drive me to seek and know God. Right biblical theology comes from God, that comes from God will necessarily lead us back to know, love, and worship him. That's the key. We want to know God not just know about him. We want to know him more, and one way we can do that is to study his attributes. Continuing that quote I read earlier from Spurgeon, 
He goes on to say, and this is a great way to close, no subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. May that be our aim for this study over the coming weeks. Let's pray. Father, you are perfect and complete in all your ways. You don't depend on, any, on us for anything, but you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. And not only that, you have also chosen to share some of your attributes with us as your creatures made in your image. We praise you for that. Most of all, we praise you for the gift of eternal life with you through the life and death and burial and resurrection of Christ on our behalf. Help us to grow in our understanding of you, your attributes as we work through this study. More importantly, Lord, I pray that we would grow in our love for you and in holiness. May that bring you the glory that you deserve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.